The disturbing final moments of Eric Garner's life on July 17, 2014, were captured on video that's been seen all over the world. His death from a banned police chokehold sparked outrage and protests and increased tensions between the NYPD and the community. During my exclusive interview in his police headquarters office, the commissioner tells me much has changed. We knew uh, we had to get a connection to the community. We had to develop relations, establish relationships first, and then keep developing those relationships to keep everybody in the safe. All police officers went through de-escalation and crisis intervention training. Body cameras are now worn by all officers on patrol, but the foundation of change was built on O'Neill's innovative idea of neighborhood coordination officers, or NCOs. They were up and running in all 77 precincts, were up and running in all the housing PSAs, were up and running in all the transit districts. O'Neill says at its core, it's a crime-fighting strategy that incorporates the community and the numbers show it's working. Crime continues to go down, specifically violence, you know, shootings, uh, homicides, Overall crime continue to go down. Daniel Pantaleo is still on the police force on modified duty since he was never charged by the state or the federal government. O'Neill tells me his status with the NYPD should be known by the second or third week in August. With uh, Officer Pantaleo's trial, it uh, finished up in June and now uh, it's with Deputy Commissioner uh, trials and I'm uh, waiting her decision. Uh, to be able to make my final decision. For the Garner family, the last five years have been a time of personal grief and a series of dead ends on their journey for justice. But Garner's daughter Emerald says she will continue her fight to see that Officer Pantaleo is fired from the NYPD. You could say it was an accident, but you still need to be held accountable. Right. If somebody dies in my custody, it is my responsibility. It is my accountability that needs to come forward. You did something wrong, you have to, help. You have to be held accountable. And that's just what the bottom line is for me. I'm so glad you're joining us for this episode of Street Soldiers on the Eric Garner tragedy five years later. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. You can find me and follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Lisa Evers. And you can catch up on all of our Street Soldiers episodes, both Hot 97 and Fox 5, free of charge on my website, lisaevers.com. Now, in this episode of Street Soldiers, we're taking a look on the fifth anniversary of Eric Garner's death after being put in an illegal police chokehold by NYPD officer Daniel Pantaleo. Recently, the federal government declined to press criminal civil rights charges against the officer, saying the video we all saw does not tell the whole story. What does this mean for Eric Garner's family? And also, what does it mean for police community relations? And what does the family consider justice in this particular case? Let's find out what our panel has to say. Joining me is Philip Hamilton. He's a civil rights and criminal defense attorney and former Bronx defender. Phil, great to have you with us again. Thanks for having me, Lisa. Thank you so much. Also with us is Emerald Garner. She is the daughter of Eric Garner, a mother of three, and an activist on her father's behalf. Emerald, thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate it. Also with us is Dr. Darren Porcher. He's a criminal justice professor, former NYPD lieutenant, and law enforcement expert. Dr. Porcher, great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. And also, I just wanted to give you a quick note. We did invite the NYPD to send a representative to be on the panel. They were unable to do that. But as you just saw, they did offer me a one-on-one -on -one interview with Police Commissioner O'Neill. But let's find out now what our panel here in studio has to say about all of this. Emerald, first of all, thank you very much for being with us at this time we really appreciate it and as you know our condolences you know remain and prayers for you and your family 
you came on Street Soldiers right after this happened to talk yes. with the community, to urge people to be calm in the face of the shock and just the grief that so many people were feeling. How is your family doing now and how are you doing now? Well, right now, sorry, I lost my voice. I know, just come closer to the mic and then we'll... Um, but we're doing okay. Um, we're holding on. Um, we're fighting the fight. And well, I'll be on the front lines every day. As I said, um, we're on day nine of 11 days of action. And you're also doing this while you're working and also raising your child and your sister's two kids. Yes, I'm a, I'm a full-time administrative assistant for foster care agency. And I have the three children, my own daughter who suffers with um, ADHD. And I also have my sister's two children. And, and Erica, rest in peace to Erica. And rest in peace to Erica. And you have her on, on the show. So where do you get the strength from? Because I know, I know your grandmother, um, Gwen Carr, we've seen many times. She said she has faith in a higher power. Where are you getting your strength to maintain throughout all of this right now? Therapy <laughs> has been a help for me. I suffer with a lot of mental health issues, as did my sister. Um, as a result of this? As a result of everything. Um, I've been in therapy. The children are in therapy. Um, it's, it's very hard to go through it without talking to someone. You know, I text you all the time. I text everyone who's been there since the beginning. So just talking it out is mostly my therapy. Darren, when, when you look at what's happening now, five years later, because that was also when you first came onto Street Soldiers, where do you think we are right now with this? Because a lot of people say, okay, nothing's really changed. Other people say, you know what, the, this decision, when is the family gonna see some kind of justice? I think we have seen some changes. Um, when we go back five years ago, the primary push for the NYPD was quantitative statistics. Police commanders were held accountable to the statistics in decreasing crime and in particular precincts. Staten Island was no different. So when we look to the, uh, the regression of the enforcement or um, agencies, I should say agencies, the enforcement units such as anti-crime units, things to that effect, a lot more plainclothes units were in play back at that time during the incident with Mr. Gardner. Now the NYPD is moving more towards the police and community relations. You have the NCO program, community policing, et cetera. So so you have seen a reduction in the number of civilian complaints as a result of that. But we still have, it's an arduous task, and we still have a lot of work that needs to be done. Case in point, when we look at what happened just over this last weekend, where we had the officers that were doused with water, that's a clear, that clearly echoes a harbinger for police and community relationships and, and we're gonna need get into to get that. to a better place. We're going to get into that. But let, let, let me talk about the, the, the Garner's fight for, for justice. Phil, when you heard recently, this is the day before the fifth anniversary the family is called in to the U.S. Attorney's Office in Brooklyn, the federal, you know, the federal office is there, and told that after all this investigation and the FBI and the video and everything that they looked into, that there would be no charges against police officer Daniel Pantaleo, who was the one we all saw in the video putting Eric Garner in that what Police Commissioner Bratton called right off the bat an illegal chokehold. What happened with that? I mean, I'll start with saying I wasn't surprised uh, when ultimately I saw that. When we talk about what happened with that, uh, you know, the Justice Department just decided that they were not going to move forward with bringing federal civil rights uh, charges against Officer Pantaleo. Now, clearly we know that the Staten Island Grand Jury a while back had declined to bring charges, so the question was whether or not federally was the DOJ going to move forward. And there's been some changes in administration, Jeff Sessions, Loretta Lynch, and now ultimately William Barr. What happened was, uh, you know, the headquarters in Washington actually was recommending moving forward with charges, but the local prosecutors here, federal prosecutors here in the Eastern District of New York, 
were saying that they didn't want to go. Ultimately, William Barr, who's the head of the Department of Justice, the attorney general, decided that they weren't going to move forward with the charges because, one, they felt as though they could not ultimately prove Officer Pantaleo guilty of, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt of using objectively unreasonable force. And then secondly, even to the extent that they could have proven that, they felt as though they would have had a weak case in proving that he willfully intended to, you know, take Mr. Garner's life and violate his federal civil rights. So that's ultimately what happened. The decision was made pretty much at the zero hour because the statute of limitations on the federal charges ran five years after his death. Oh, the death. So that's why it was the day before, because some people interpreted that as this is a total disrespect to the family. But you're saying they waited till the last possible minute and then... This is what this is what happened. They did. This decision could have been made years ago, just to be frank, even throughout differing administrations. Um, but it just wasn't. It was kind of pushed to the back end. That then had collateral consequences in terms of the city. Right. When we talk about the CCRB, they didn't initially bring charges because they wanted to wait and see what the federal government it seems was like everybody's waiting for everybody else. Everybody was passing the buck basically until the last minute. And really, at this point, the only kind of forum we have left for accountability is this departmental trial that Pantaleo just pretty much finished up. And we're waiting on a decision right now. Uh, from the deputy commissioner of trials right. and, and then ultimately commissioner What the recommendation is about whether or not he's still in the job. But let me come back to that day. Emerald, it's the day before the fifth anniversary of, of, your, of your father's death. The videos are out again. You're exposed to the videos again. You're, there's a lot of people. Everybody's calling you. You're out there. You're called into the U.S. Attorney's Office. You walked out of that because that was you were so upset. Tell us how you found out that you were going to hear that decision then and, and what the decision was. So we were called to a round table. Um, an article was released an hour or two prior to us even getting to the building. And um, someone pulled up the article and said, hey, um, this was just released. Is this true? So I'm like, you know, I'm just listening. And the article said the you're article talking about. that the federal government will not press charges against right. Pantaleo. Right. So when they came in the room, it was like, you know, nice to meet you. And I'm like, it's not nice to meet you. I need confirmation. Are you going to file the charges? Oh, you're not. He said, we're not. So I said, the conversation, the meeting is done. What are we going to say and talk to? Oh, I want to give my condolences. I've heard that for the past five years. I don't want to hear condolences anymore. I said, you guys intentionally waited. I said, we could have did this a week ago. We could have did it two weeks ago. Right. You skillfully, disrespectfully made that decision on the day before the anniversary. Did you have hope? Did I you did and your family have no. hope? like over the last couple of years that maybe the federal government would come in like they did with the way back in the 90s, the case with Anthony Bias, who That's what we were football hit the police car in the Bronx and um, Officer Francis Lavodi was found not guilty, you know, was not indicted by the local DA, but the federal government pressed charges against him and he actually went to jail. After my sister died, I lost all hope because she died waiting for a decision from the Department of Justice. She died not getting justice. So after she died, all hope died with her. And you were just, you were expecting it, but you weren't expecting them to treat you the way that they did. Absolutely. I wasn't expecting you to wait till the day before the federal, day before the statute of limitation ran out to tell us that you're not going to make any charges. And then to release a statement before you talk to the family, that's ultimately disrespectful. All right, this is Street Soldiers. We'll be right back. Yeah, Yo, you already know what it is, man. This is B.I.G. Sean. And this is the Street Soldiers with Lisa Evers. Real issues. Real politics, real people, only on Hot 97. Welcome back to Street Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. In this episode, we're talking about the Eric Garner tragedy five years later. 
Where are we? Let me introduce our panel to you. Joining me is Philip Hamilton. He's a civil rights and criminal defense attorney and also a former Bronx defender. Phil, great to have you with us. Thank you for having me, Lisa. Thank you so much. Also joining us is Emerald Garner. She's the daughter of Eric Garner, a mother of three and an activist. Emerald, great to have you with us. Thank you so much. Also joining us is Dr. Darren Porcher. He's a criminal justice professor, former NYPD lieutenant, and law enforcement expert. Uh, Dr. Darren, great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Thank, thank you so much. Um, Darren, when you hear how the family was notified, because, and you know, you've been in the media, do a lot of commentating, that for a newspaper article to appear, it has to, people have had to have more than an hour's notice to put together a lengthy article. For that to come out an hour, before the family was even notified themselves. What do you think of that? I mean, I think that's a miscarriage of justice in itself. Um, the article preempting what happened with them, I think it w was a, an atrocity to say the least. What should happen in a situation like that is there should have been a casualty officer that exercised the human factor that actually sat down with the family and just kind of hashed out, this is what we have. And then once the family understood what was going to take place, then that's when the press release should have occurred. Unfortunately, the reverse happened. And what it does is it, it now exasperates the situation for the family because we take in consideration we have a loved one that was lost in the process of a police altercation. So that was a pretty big leak and a pretty it, early leak. Right. It, I mean, it, it's unfortunate. And just, you know, one of the things is I, I just mentioned the human factor. We're all human beings. And so whenever you lose, the loss of a loved one is catastrophic to the family members. So we don't have one victim. We have several victims. We have the person that lost their life, and we have the family as well. So going back to that, whoever the casualty officer was that managed that particular situation, dropped the ball. Dropped the ball. Emerald, for you and your family, going through, like you sat in every day there during the NYPD departmental trial, Emotionally, what do you, are you feeling just frustrated because your grandmother, Gwen Carr, said this is not over, but a lot of the options, a lot of the doors have closed. So right now, um, I, I, don't, I didn't really announce that I was going to be at the trial because I didn't want to make it about a media spectacle. So that's why I didn't make any comments or anything. Um, the trial was disrespectful itself. Um, you know, the, the uh, Pantaleo side was just... It was just disrespectful. Every, everything since 7, 17, 14 has been nothing but disrespect. So it's like we sat through a trial, we watched the video, no charges on the criminal, no charges on the federal, no charges on the local. So it's like, you know, what, what are we to do now? Except um, we're, we're waiting for him to be fired, and it's like he should have been five, fired five years ago. And I, and I want to talk about that, but yeah. Phil, first give us, give us just an overview. What are the legal options when something like this happens? I mean, the legal options were kind of as you just sent through them. I mean, ultimately, you remember Donovan, who at the time was a district attorney of Staten Island, tried to, you know, have Pantaleo indicted, but the grand jury back in 14 decided ultimately that they weren't going to do that. They didn't indict him on any charges. So that pretty much is why he was able to walk with respect to the criminal realm. Then, as we just discussed, in terms of the federal civil rights violations, the DOJ had the opportunity to bring those charges. They ultimately decided that they were not going to. As I said, I was not surprised. Do I think that ultimately they could have moved forward yeah, on those do you charges? Because you're, you're in federal court all the time. They absolutely could have. And I think systemically what you have a lot of times is, you know, from a prosecutorial standpoint, I feel as though the way that the system looks at officers in these situations is different than when they just look at general, you know, people on the street, right, general civilians. And I think the decision that was made ultimately not to charge him to the extent that that's going to be the platform, I just wish sometimes that the both the U.S. Attorney's Office, the local, local prosecutorial offices, 
would use that same discretion with a lot of the clients that I represent. Exactly, but here's the here's the thing. I was there in that I was there that that day in the courthouse. I saw saw the the Garner family. We interviewed Emerald also for Fox Five and for Hot ninety seven. The um, the prosecute the the U.S. attorney said he goes we can, we don't have enough evidence to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. And a lot of the reporters in the room that cover courts and cover cases looked at each other like, what? That's not his job. That's the job once the trial is underway. That's the job of the jury. That's the job of the jury. So Correct. people were saying, why didn't he just convene if they didn't want to get involved for whatever political reasons or whatever? Why didn't they convene a federal grand jury? In your opinion, from your experience in, in federal court, Eastern Absolutely. District, Southern District, did they have enough evidence to convene a federal grand jury? Yes. I mean, the evidence comes from the video. Now, what ultimately the grand jury decides to do with that, you got to kind of look at it no different than the grand jury in Staten Island. It's their decision ultimately to make. But to put yourself in a position where you're not even putting it before the grand jury, I deal with cases where they put a lot less before grand juries. I deal with cases where they roll the dice and just say, hey, let's see what happens. And to the extent the indictment comes back, they still move forward with the trial or whatever it may be. So, you know, those options were there. They, for whatever reason, decided that they didn't want to take it. Um, and now, you know, we're kind of just left with what's going to happen with respect to the departmental trial. Is he going to be fired? Is he not going to be fired? It's really the last level of accountability. It's the last level of accountability. Darren, what about that? Because the, 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 the departmental trial we're talking about is Officer Pantaleo, five years later, just now, just over five years, still on the job. He's on desk duty, but he's still getting paid. He's... He's not on desk He's duty? not on desk duty. I worked on Staten Island for two years straight from 2016, well, 2015 to 2017, and he's definitely out in the field. All right. Well, we're going to look into that. But he, um, he's getting paid. He's, he's still a police officer. This departmental trial uh, just concluded. They're waiting, as Phil mentioned, the recommendations, and then I guess what happens What happens next? First of all, explain what a departmental trial is. Well, First of all, why do, why do they have to have that? Like, why can't the, why can't the police commissioner or whoever just say, listen, this is not the way we want our NYPD officers to function in the streets. And this was, let's remind everybody, a misdemeanor arrest of an unarmed man who did not attack a police officer, did not do anything to him or, or any of the other officers there. So why do we have to go through all this with the departmental trial? What do you say to people who have that opinion? Well, just to give you a background, yeah. um, for a period of time, I was a lieutenant assigned to the Internal Affairs Bureau in the NYPD. So I was actually on the other side of the table with these types of cases, death and custody cases, police misconduct, et cetera. And the natural order of discipline is the prosecutorial arm, be it federal or local authorities, must complete their case prior to moving forward with the departmental trial. That's always been a natural order in how these cases move forward from an administrative perspective. That being said, the NYPD was awaiting the outcome of the local trial, which as the um, the attorney mentioned, that was already done with, There was they didn't want to go with the indictment. The second, the second phase of it, the federal government, which just ended recently, was now gave the NYPD the green light to move forward from an administrative perspective. Because remember, we have two different lanes. We have an administrative lane and we have a criminal lane. The administrative lane comes after the criminal lane is exhausted. And that's why we're at the at the place that we're at. Now, in connection with Officer Pantaleo's status, he is on modified assignment. 
I don't know where he's assigned. So as you mentioned, he may be in the field. I, he's definitely not in the field conducting police work. He's doing something from an administrative perspective. Like he doesn't have a gun. We would call right, right, exactly. He doesn't have a gun. He doesn't have a shield. It's primarily an administrative job. So moving forward, right now, the outcome is going to be determined by two factions. You're going to have the deputy commissioner of trials, meaning the trial commissioner in the NYPD. That person, they're going to make a decision as to what direction they're going to go, either innocent or guilty. Then you got to re- then you got to have a recommendation. That recommendation is go- going to go to the police commissioner. Police commissioner James O'Neill is going to make an assessment of all of the facts because he has a general counsel in his office as well that will look at all of the facts connected with this particular case. And based on the general counsel Council's um, recommendation to the police commissioner, then we'll hear if Officer Pantaleo will in fact be either terminated or maintain his job or incur a level of discipline, be it um, an administrative like process. Like vacation days? Well, or, thir- or... 30 days, um, lose 30 days, it could be 60 days, or he can even be placed back on probation for a year. But there's an assemblance of different lanes that the police commissioner can pursue. But it goes back to we're now awaiting that decision from the trials commission to go to the police commission. All right, coming up, what would the Garner family consider to be justice? Yo, what up? It's the game, and it's the Street Soldiers with Lisa Evers. Real issues, real politics, and real people only on Hot 9-7. Welcome back to Street Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. In this episode, we're talking about the Eric Garner tragedy five years later. Where are we at with everything? Joining me for this discussion, attorney Philip Hamilton. He's a civil rights and criminal defense attorney and former Bronx defender. Phil, great to have you with us. Thank Thanks you for so much. Me, also joining us is Emerald Garner. She's the daughter of Eric Garner. She's a mother of three and also an activist. Emerald, thank you for being with us. We appreciate it. Also with us is Dr. Darren Porter. He's a criminal justice professor and former NYPD lieutenant. He's also a law enforcement expert. Um, Dr. Darren Porter, thank you so much Thanks for, for, for being with us. Emerald, your family has vowed to continue the fight for justice for your father. What does justice look like at this point? Well, right now, we just want Pantaleo, all the officers involved, terminated indefinitely. That's what we're calling for, change.org. I have a petition that everyone will sign. We have uh, 60,000 signatures right now. Um, We're calling for um, Congression to basically um, make all police brutality trials public, release all of the information to the public as the trial is going on. Um, Also for commissioners, lawmakers and you know police the pba presidents and everyone to be um to testify in public about what their views are and also we are calling for the eric garner law which will ban chokeholds arm holds anything that they they label as a chokehold because they're calling this they call it what happened to the eric seat garner belt. everything they're calling it the a seat, seat belt yes, the seat belt maneuver arm the arm bar hold the seat belt the seat belt technique or um hand locking that's what they're calling it, but it's all a chokehold. So we're calling for the Eric Garner law. Phil, the, in terms of the legal political scope of this, the we, we've seen other you know high profile cases of, of police excessive force and death by in that in that particular case. Are these more common than what other cases that happen that we don't hear about? Because the Civilian Complaint Review Board says complaints against officers are down. What's your sense of that? It, I, I can't say one way or the other what exactly the numbers are, but in terms of like do these cases happen, they they happen. But as we've seen, and I you know I think unfortunately with respect to your father's situation, what tends to be the outcome is that again from a systemic standpoint we have two different justice systems: one that exists for the decisions 
uh, that officers make and one that exists for the decisions that everyone else makes. And I think when we look at this case, let's even just look at the charges right now that exist with respect to the departmental trial. We have the, uh, w whether it's the first degree strangulation, and then I think also we have the reckless assault, correct? You know, and I think in this situation, every, ever since I initially saw that video, and whenever I saw Pantaleo still on the ground with your father, with his arm around his neck, that to me is just objectively reckless, right? Now, whether or not that's willful and that rises to the level of the federal charge we talked about earlier, that was clearly the decision for the DOJ to make, whether right. I agree with it or not. However, you know, with respect to, you know, just kind of that move, the chokehold had already been, from a patrol guide standpoint, disavowed by NYPD. You weren't supposed to be it doing wasn't it. It wasn't written into state law, too? It was banned by the state Correct. law? Correct. I, I think that's probably the charge that Pantaleo has the most to worry about, at least with respect to the departmental trial, because it's, it's, just, it's, it's objectively reckless, it's colloquially reckless, and I think just from a legal standpoint, you can make the case that it's legally reckless as well. And so if I'm him, uh, and I'm trying to keep my job. That's the biggest charge that I'm worried about right Dan, now. Uh, um, Darren, what about this this whole seatbelt thing? With the seatbelt, it's it's a seatbelt hold, not a chokehold. The Commissioner Bratton, straight off the gate, right after this happened, he was commissioner at that time, said this was an illegal chokehold that has been banned for I don't know how many years by the NYPD. You know, by the NYPD, our officers are not supposed to use this chokehold because of the danger. Then, in the course of the, the what the U.S. Attorney was saying. And, and also some of the departmental trials where I was able to attend some of the sessions, they're saying it, the arm was there, it was an arm bar over his chest, throat and chest and not his neck, and then it turned into a seatbelt hold, and it was due to the difference in the size of Officer Pantaleo and your father. It looked something, what do you make of all that? Well, like, what, what is that really, in your professional opinion, what, what did that look like to you? You know, from a deciduous point, this was actually a brilliant defense tactic that was employed by Stuart London, who was the PBA attorney. Right. They sat down and they convened on what is the strategy we're going to use to press forward with this. And there is an actual seatbelt. There's an actual seatbelt hold technique that is utilized. So, but it's subjective because from one angle, it'll be, one can say, "Hey, look." Any pressure to the throat or the larynx is justifiably a chokehold. But then you have another side of it, whereas if this, quote unquote, the forearm that's pressed in that particular area of the body, just just above the chest, right below the neck, that can be um, detailed as a seatbelt hold. It appears as if the judge accepted this. When I say the judge, meaning the administrative judge, accepted this as a valid defense. So that's why they've moved forward with that as what happened. Now, when you mentioned what happened, happened with um, Police Commissioner Bratton. Bratton did come out and state that this was, in fact, a chokehold. And this goes back to the early 80s. I want to say 86, 84 was the first time the procedural guidelines, which we refer to as the patrol guide, introduced the prohibition in using a chokehold in police work. Right. I believe the gentleman's name was Michael Stewart. That was the first person that was actually, um, that, that was the first person that was killed that they labeled a chokehold so as being the culprit this, this. this is not something that right. you should be using. This this was not a man that was running. This was, well, this was not a man that had a weapon pulled, right? Well, one, it this just, was a misdemeanor, an alleged misdemeanor offense. Well, we have to look at it. This was selling a, Lucy cigarettes. This was a situation where an arrest was um, force was used in application of taking someone into custody. I'm not telling you that because, uh, like, when I when I heard about the seatbelt hold and I heard about the chokehold, it was it, it, it's subjective in how you look at it, and I really tout my hat. 
to Stu London for, for introducing such a brilliant defense in this particular case. Okay, but moving let, forward, let me, let me, hold on, hold on. Wait, listen, Emerald, wait, hold listen, on. Listen, Emerald, listen. Wait, hold on. Let, 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 let me say something. Well, when London bring up the seatbelt technique, we pulled out all of Pantaleo's training. Seatbelt technique was not in his training when he had training with the department. Of, you're absolutely uh, of right. The NYPD he was never trained in the seatbelt. You're absolutely right. But let her finish. The chokehold was banned. All right. Well, either way that they try to put it, his arm was around his neck and his throat was crushed. Once again, although he wasn't so trained, put listen. that out there. But we see in the video. So, All right. Okay. But, but then in terms of, okay, give me one second. In right. And then in terms of Phil, in terms of, in terms of evidence too, the other piece of this too, which played into the federal case. Uh, the decision not to bring charges in the federal case was they said that the you know that the pressure was not that that your your dad passed away from other causes while the city medical examiner said it was the chokehold there were other autopsies that proved that said there were other you know complicating factors how do you look at that from a legal standpoint from a legal standpoint basically Pantaleo's defense is trying to challenge the cause of death right so they brought in I think a medical examiner from St. Louis if I'm not mistaken to come in and say that there were a number of other health issues that your father was experiencing at the time that may have ultimately led to his death but the way that the CCRB countered that was basically to show via the medical examiner's report here that, you know, uh, Mr. Garner had hemorrhaging within his throat, that whether it's a seatbelt hold, whether it's a chokehold, it's all semantics because the objective proof of what ultimately happened is was in his throat. And it was showed with respect to the hemorrhaging. That's probably at least I think where the case is coming from on, on, on your father's end, where the asthma attack was triggered and then ultimately led to his death. But I think just one thing I want to say quickly, Lisa, because all of you kind of touched on this without saying it. But whether it's a seatbelt hold, whether it's a chokehold, is all of this really necessary when we're talking about an alleged selling of a Lucy cigarette? Not even weed. Of a like, Lucy cigarette. Even if it was yeah. that, he did it, hold on, whether he did it or whether he didn't, I think when we look at policy implications moving forward, when we talk about what you can, and, and Bratton was in, and remember he was big on these quality of life type offenses, as, as you're well aware. Right. I, this is not the kind of area where I think that Pantaleo and his partner should have been ordered to go in there and forcefully arrest this man. This should have been, at most, a summonsable offense. It, it, this is my personal and legal which opinion. Which it would be now, which now, yeah, now it probably it would be, right? It would be a summonsable You shouldn't be chokeholding this man or taking him down or seatbelting him. For cigarettes. For a cigarette. For cigarettes. But, Darren, what, what about the issue of the other officers that were around there, his supervisor, and then the other thing that I found horrifying looking at the video, as did many other people, was when the paramedics arrived. Drive, Tell him, to calm be down, buddy, and he was dead, <laughs> talking to him like he was right. alive. That's the problem. The problem is they're saying that it was because of his asthma. No, you, when you crush the neck, you can't. Asthma, I have asthma. When I have an asthma attack, my throat doesn't close. My lungs, my, my pipes to my lungs get filled with mucus. So in the process of him saying, I can't breathe, if he would have got an asthma pump, would have been fine. If he would have got a nebulizer, it would have been fine. But when you crush someone's neck when you restrict their neck has nothing to do with the lungs because there's no air going to the lungs we have an asthma attack that's restricting breathing going into the lungs Darren, when you looked at the uh, the other the, just the behavior of the officers the demeanor uh, afterwards we all saw the, the the part where the you know the alleged chokehold what we've been calling a chokehold since the beginning where, where that we see that part of the video but if you look and see the rest of the video too where mr garner just eric garner's on the ground and 
nobody's really doing anything to try to to try to help him or check him or check his pulse or anything. From a practical perspective, I can speak to being a, a lieutenant in uniform on patrol and how that should have been handled. It was clearly an ex it was clearly a failure to supervise. As a supervisor, me as a lieutenant on the street, I'm going to take control and take command of that situation. I would have handled it differently. I'm speaking from the perspective of having 20, 20 years of practical experience on the street. I know how to diffuse those types of situations. One of the first things that, that happened was the sergeant, which was a female African-American, she was a sergeant in all of 30 days rank, to see at 30 days in rank. She was demoted as a result of the failure to supervise. In addition to that, the supervisor on the scene should have taken control of the situation. Now, we talk about, you. you you guys were saying, well, it was loose cigarettes, well, it was marijuana. There's no offense that justifies a person losing their life on the street. I've pulled guns off of people in the street and I didn't shoot them. So when we say just because it was loose cigarettes, that's really a non-issue. It's how you deal with people accordingly. And so when we, we take into consideration how the interdiction took place, one of the things that we had with Eric Garner was this. We already had his address. So let's say hypothetically he was selling, listen to me, a tractor trailer full of cigarettes, right? Right. We knew Eric Garner's name, his address. We could have easily come back to him another day. This wasn't something that he would, he, in no way, shape, or form, did he appear to me as a flight risk. This was somebody that was in the neighborhood. He said, I'm not, I'm sick and tired of this. I'm tired of you harassing me. Many times I've regressed in situations as I said, look, you know what? I know how to catch up with this person. I can just find out where he lives, and I can pull him to the side, and I can have the engagement and say, hey, look. At because a later what point. It, right. What this would have amounted to was something referred to as a desk appearance ticket. Right. You could have done the desk appearance ticket at another point, but there wasn't an wasn't exigent the goal. circumstance. The goal was after a while they wanted to take him down. Well, but the exigent, what I'm getting after at is the, the we didn't have, progressed. hear me out. We didn't have exigent circumstances that allowed us, that required us to take him into custody right, right then and there. And that right. boils down to, again, a community relations standpoint. I got a brother-in-law. He's an officer down in South Carolina. And he and I generally, with me being a defense attorney, we have these frank conversations, sometimes about the way that black officers, let's just be frank, are able to approach black suspects on the street. We do so in a way sometimes that subconsciously, at least as he's always put it to me, and is what I'm hearing coming from you sometimes, is there's ways that we just kind of know intuitively how to like regress that situation, how to how to downplay it so that it's not right. getting to the point of like, you know what, you're not listening to me. This is now becoming a situation of control. I'm gonna jump on your back. Right. I'm gonna pull you down. Right. Bring up exactly. a good point. Could be... you, you bring okay, up a good we point. Need to I'm take, sorry. We need to take a short Apologize. break. We're gonna continue to talk about this. Coming up, what effect has the tragedy of Eric Garner had on police community relations? Over the last five years, we'll be right back. Yeah, this your boy Rolling Stone P. And make sure y'all check out the Street Soldiers with the beautiful Lisa Evers. Welcome back to Street Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. In this episode, we're talking about the Eric Garner tragedy five years later. Where are we at? And joining me for this conversation, Philip Hamilton. He's a civil rights and criminal defense attorney and former Bronx defender. Phil, thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Lisa. Thank you. Also with us is Emerald Garner. She's the daughter of Eric Garner, a mother of three and an activist. Emerald, thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate it. Also joining us is Dr. Darren Porcher. He's a criminal justice professor, former NYPD lieutenant, and law enforcement expert. Darren, thank you so much for being Always with us. Always a pleasure. Us. Thank you. We appreciate it. Emerald, um, explain one thing to us, because one of the things that everybody noticed about your family, especially in that first year 
when there were a lot of protests about other incidents that were happening around the country. There were, there were protests that turned very violent, that turned into riots. But in New York, there were a lot of protests, tens of thousands of people on many different occasions. Everything was peaceful. And a lot of leaders, of the local leaders, credited your family with setting that tone, saying you can be angry, you can be in the streets, you can let your voice be heard, but please keep it peaceful because your father was about peace. How did you all come to that decision when you're grieving, you're upset, and this is you're going through this and going through it all under a media spotlight? Well, for me, um, I pretty much I, I I I take solace in talking to people. <laughs> so it's like you know you want people to be peaceful. Of course, you want to turn out. Erica was about to turn out. Erica was not about peace. She said peace, nothing. She's gonna yell and scream. So like. I feel like there's a way to get your message across without being violent. You don't have to physically do anything to anybody for for you to get your point across. Like, you know, I'm I'm not an aggressive person, but I'm an impulsive person. I act off an of impulse. A lot of things I do is very emotional, emotionally driven. So I understand people's anger, I understand people's frustration. But there's a way to do it. There's no there's no um, oh you're gonna hit a police officer. That's not gonna make it better. Um, causing a riot is not going to bring Eric Garner back. Causing a riot is not going to bring Erica back. These kids lost their mother. We lost our father. They're never going to come back. So all we can do is push forward. If I end up in jail for inciting a riot, where does that leave me? Where does that leave my kids? So I can't be out there being violent when I know that the consequences and repercussions ultimately falls on the kids. Everything that I do, I have to make sure that they're taken care of. And and Phil, the and the the message of peace played out because people were very angry, and there were a lot of protests, and there were a lot of of those ro uh, roving and roaming protests too. So, you know, with no specific leader. So I think that was a that was a wonderful message, the, the peace message and that I you think were able to get out. Remain peaceful. Yeah, and people did remain peaceful. Phil, in, in terms of the timing of everything too, the shortly thereafter or around the same time, the. Federal monitors stepped into play with the NYPD because of the stop and frisk situation that had been going on where a disproportionately large number of men of color were arrested for no apparent reason. So the federal monitor, what did that do in terms of what we're, we've been seeing with the NYPD? Well, it's just a higher level of accountability. And I guess shout out to my old office, uh, the Bronx Defenders, but that office in large part played a big role um, in terms of bringing some of the litigation because a lot of the uh, clients that made up that basically class action that led to the federal monitor came from the Bronx and were and, and were former clients that I was dealing with up there. So in that in that respect it's just like a higher level of accountability just knowing that there's an eye over you that I think ultimately when we talk about a lot of these policy implications and more importantly speaking changes um, I don't know necessarily if the NYPD could be trusted to do it on its own effectively. And, you know, to the extent that hopefully today uh, in July of uh, 2019, if something like this were to happen again, if there were to be another situation, you know, hopefully that training and these changes trickle all the way down to the bottom such that this would just at worst be a desk appearance ticket or a pink summit or something along those lines and not a repeat. Whereas, as you said, somebody has lost their life, you know, over somebody something, has lost over their father. Over something that's, a, that's a considered a minor offense. Super trivial. D Darren, in terms of the retraining, because since, since Eric Garner, since Eric Garner's death, the, uh, the en entire NYPD of patrol officers that's out there has been 
retrained. The supervisors, which we saw some of the, were able to see some of the training and go in there with our camera. The supervisors were trained in de-escalation techniques and all sorts of uh, psychological training that they received from trained therapists in order to deal with people um, so that this, this would never happen again. What do you make of what's been done and what do you think has been the most effective? I think it's important that we do have the training, but we need to have a reassessment. You know, how can we make the assessment to see that this is actually working? We need to quantitate, and I give the example of maybe civilian complaints or incidents. Which they say are down. Right, right. In As are arrests, they say arrests are down. Too. Civilian complaints are coming down, and also a lot of these police and community engagements. We need to do those assessments on, um, on these meetings that we have between the police and the community leaders, and also that disenfranchised population, because that's who in many ways gets left out. And I think if your father is one of those disenfranchised people, your father wasn't a community leader, but he was somebody that lived in the community. Those people have a voice, and oftentimes they get glossed over with the NYPD as well as government. So when we look back to how can we qualitatively and quantitatively assess what we've done, it needs to be a constantly ongoing process. We talk, we speak to the federal monitor in, in a connection with the Floyd versus City of New York case. That's the quote-unquote stop and frisk. That's a help, that's an additive, but it needs to be continuous. It can't be every time we have a scandal, that's when we put together these blue but ribbon they put panels. In the, but they're put in the body cameras. A lot of the officers have body cameras now so that people can actually see. Phil, what do you think about that from a legal standpoint? Or any standpoint? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I had to what take think that a second. I mean, but I don't know. There's good that comes with them, I suppose, but then also it's not something that just from a personal or a professional standpoint I get super excited about because think about it. Even to the extent that there weren't body cameras here, there was a camera. It caught it. And whatever is caught on the camera is still in many respects going to be subject to interpretation because when we look at at least criminal law, you're always having to look at what's the mental culpability of the actor, right? So no matter what's ultimately caught on tape. You mean like their intent or? What's their intent? Right. Was my intent, was, was I willfully intending to kill this man? Was I willfully intending to violate this man's civil rights? So that even if we have this objective, you know, footage that's caught within the camera of someone's arm around your father's uh, throat, what it basically boils down to is, as you said earlier, Darren, what's the interpretation on that? What was his intent? Well, it seems like anything can be. I mean, I, it seems that in a lot of cases, not just this case, but a lot of cases, anything can be interpreted any way, depending on how skillful the person doing the interpreting. Right. I just there was want the. To interject. Yeah, go ahead. You know, to, to think of the state of someone's mental health, whether it was his intention or not to kill Aragona, Aragona is still dead. So whether he was intentionally killed or accidentally killed, you could say it was an accident, but you still need to be held accountable. Right. If somebody dies in my custody, it is my responsibility. It is my accountability that needs to come forward. You did something wrong, you have to, help, you have to be held accountable. And that's just what the bottom line is for me. Because we can say that he's never encountered Aragorn before, but it was never released that he has arrested Aragorn before. That there was a roundtable talk about Aragorn where his picture was, was displayed, and they had a discussion about what he does. So they know exactly who he was. They knew who, who we were on Staten Island. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, they know who my mom is. They know who my brothers were. We're, we're, not, we're not hard to miss. We're all six feet and taller. We're not hard to miss. As they say, he was a big man. We're all big people. So whether it was his intention or not, you still did something wrong. You should still be held accountable. And I think that's and what, what would you what, what is accountability to, to you at this point? Because the only thing left, only question mark left, it seems legally, is this departmental 
trial decision and the disciplinary hearing, what would be what would be justice for you, for your family? So at I this mean, point? for ju- justice for me would be not having another Eric Garner, Tamir Rice, Michael Brown, or Sandra Bland to not have the police continuously kill us, kill us black people, and. I kind of, in my feeling, in my gut, through the streets, heard that he's going to be fired but still keep his pension. That's going to be another spin in the face. So right now I have no hope. I don't think that O'Neill is fair. I don't think that de Blasio is fair. I don't think anybody is fair. I don't think the judge will make the right decision. And that's just how I feel. It may not be how everybody else feels, but I've been... I've been spit in the face multiple times in the past five years. So justice for me means stop killing us. Justice for me is losing your job without keeping your pension, without keeping your perks, because your pension is your perk. That's what you get after you serve and you protect and serve the community. He's not a protect and serve kind of person. He has multiple disciplinary um, CCRB complaints against him. Multiple. There's over 10. I've worked at 311. So I know exactly how the process goes for CCRB. So it's like, you know, we, we're not... I'm not going to go through the gray area anymore. It's black or white. If you arrest, if you terminate him with his pension, that's still disrespectful. You terminate him without it, that, that would be, he should have been terminated five years ago. In terms of the anger a lot of people feel, still feel about what happened, what happened to your father and the lack of what, of what you say, say is justice, would be justice, justice for you. When you saw that recent video of the police officers being doused with water and a bucket thrown at their head, <laughs> what did you think of that? I think they were hot. <laughs> the kids were hot and they were at the hydrant and it's like officers don't be mad Psh, I don't think they did it in a malicious way I think it was just oh officer chill out like you know like when in my in my community I grew up in Brownsville I recall being outside and the cops walking through the fire hydrant with us or making sure that the cars don't hit us right. there's a way to say listen you can have this hydrant it's already open we're not going to close it stay out the street or just stay in the little area of where the cars are so I don't think that they maliciously threw water on them. Those were kids. Those were not adults. Right. So I don't think it was a malicious intent. I think it was cool off officer. Darren, what do you think about in, in terms of the climate right now with police community relations? Where do you do you think there has been progress? Because there has been a lot more work in the neighborhoods. There's been police officers assigned to establish relationships with people in the community that are the, the regular officers, not just officers running on radio calls from one call to another call, always at a crisis moment. What do you think about some of these measures that the NYPD has done? Have they have they had an effect? Have they improved things? I think they have, but they're all cogs in the mechanism of change. It needs to be comprehensive. It's not a one-fix solution. So as we move forward with the seismic shift and getting to a better place, we refer to something as 21st century policing. And that's when we can actually look in and see this is what's happening. There's a level of transparency. I think that's ultimately what the public wants. They want transparency into how police deal with individuals. So when they see things, because there's many times people, uh, members of the public commit acts of atrocities and the, and the public will stand behind the officers. But if police do something wrong, they want to have the ability to hold them accountable. So when I mentioned COGS and the mechanism of change, it's merely that transparency so we can move forward with effective 21st century policing. Phil, as you look, as you look at the landscape right now in the city, the tone in the city, the types of cases that you, you take on or that people want you, to, want you to take on, where do you think we're at? Are we, this, this, Tragedy aside, do you think we are in a better place, the same place, a worse place, but with police community relations overall? 
I would say we're kind of still at the status quo. I'm, I'm not going to say that things are necessarily worse. Maybe that's where some of the you know policy changes and some of the retraining has come in. But if I'm just to put like my finger on the pulse of like the city and, and, and particularly with the community, I, you know, I'm not at BXD being in private practice. Now, my clientele is a little bit different than it right. used to be. Of However, course. you know, having worked there in 2009, 10, 11, 12, you know, unfortunately, what happened with your father, like we kind of saw something like that happening because at that point, you know, the stop and frisk policing was, was just so intense. It was so hot. I mean, even I'm be frank with you, I had gotten caught up in it. I had a CCRB complaint leaving the Bronx uh, courthouse in a suit. You know, I had a little situation with an officer across the street. So, you know, at that point, it was very hot. That was actually so back in 2014. You know, this is interesting. You know, they could never find a correlation between stop and frisk and a reduction in crime. And that was an outcome in the Floyd versus the city of New York case. That was so part of the that, case. Right. All of those people that were being stopped, and we were like 93% of these people that were stopped didn't have weapons. No. And so we no, didn't have I don't, don't want to get off on the yeah, stop yeah, and frisk. Yeah, yeah. We, we got to wrap things up here. We're running out of time. But so, so you're basically saying you think it's... It, it's it, things are better. It doesn't. One step forward, one step back. It doesn't. It doesn't feel like 2010 anymore in terms of like being that hot or right. 2014 that kind of era. So I guess if I look in the last five years, if I'm going to give the city any bit of credit, it doesn't feel that hot. So I'll give you some credit. It it, it feels a little but bit. But more better. work to be done. More work needs to be done. I think that's exactly where I was trying to go with it, Lisa. Uh, okay, Darren. Let final word. What do you think? Better or worse? Uh, you know, I think we no. I think we're in a better place, but we need to strive to continue to get to a better place. Because if we gain, if we gain a level of comfort where we are, then that's when we're going to have problems, and we're going to regress to where we were in the early '90s and the late '80s. All right, um, Emerald, I'm going to give you the final word on this. Do you think we're in a better place aside from what your family is going through in the tragedy as a society, or do you think it's we're just not, you know, things have gotten worse? Um, I think that they haven't gotten worse, but they haven't gotten better, and we still have work to do. And how how far do you and your family plan to continue to fight for justice for your dad? Until I'm going like my sister. All right. I want to thank you for being with us. Uh, for Street Soldiers, Attorney Philip Hamilton, thank you so much. Emerald Garner, thanks for being with us. We really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. You talked with us in 20, 2014, right after this happened, and we appreciate you coming in to, to talk with us again about where you're at and where your family's at. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And Dr. Darren right. Porcher, thank, thank you. you so much for being with us. We really appreciate it. And thank you for joining thank us you. for this episode of Street Soldiers. I'm Lisa Evers. Remember, use your mind. It's your best weapon. I hope it's your only weapon. Let's push for peace.